Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. Dedicated fans will of course have noticed that we have been unexpectedly silent these last two weeks, and that's because family emergencies don't tend to care what your schedule looks like. We do hope to be back soon though, and in the meantime, we hope you'll enjoy this collection of our favorite articles on the subject of recreational drugs that are specifically not LSD. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. Our first link comes from The New Yorker from Anna Russell, and it's called The Laughing Gas Wars of London. Oh. (laughs) Wars? Yeah, and, you know, you would think this might be sort of a historical piece, but this is specifically about nitrous oxide canisters that are being littered in huge amounts in London this summer. (laughs) But, like, on accident or on purpose? Oh, on purpose. Okay. Part of this is because everyone's in lockdown and there's been a tradition of a lot of people, especially in London, going to public parks to drink because, you know, the green spaces are considered somewhat safer, especially in the socially distanced environment. But the problem is we're getting a lot of litter and it starts off by noting that there is plastic cups from birthday parties, paper confetti, mask, rubber gloves in the bushes and trees. But there have also been a lot of nitrous oxide silver canisters. They look like these little miniature torpedoes and about the size of a human thumb. And they've noticed that they've been accumulating in areas of, quote, frenzied socializing, often discarded (laughs) alongside a deflated balloon and an empty box of chips. The article notes the balloons are what are used to dispense the gas. The chips are incidental. (laughs) Um, It's become prevalent enough that they actually banned it by name along with alcohol, barbecuing and playing loud music. But part of what makes this really confusing is that the legal situation around nitrous oxide, at least in the UK, is super confusing. So it's legal to sell nitrous oxide canisters for non-recreational use. And they are used legally all the time in medicine and catering. They're what (laughs) make whipped cream frothy in whipped cream canisters. Yeah, see, that's how I know them. You know them from actually making whipped cream? (laughs) Right. Well, so what it was was, I don't know how fast the drug lingo changes, but when I was younger, these were called whippets. Yeah. And then my aunt bought this cool, like, it'll immediately froth your whipped cream tool. And she brought it out at Thanksgiving and was like, hey, we're going to make this for the pumpkin pie. And I was like, oh, you're using whippets. And she's like, excuse me, what? And (laughs) then I had to explain why I knew what whippets were, which I had never used them, but I did know what they were. Right. But there are, yeah, there are legal uses for them for sure, (laughs) is the point. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's why you can still get them at corner shops. I think they're available in head shops. Basically, you can sell it anywhere, but only to the right customers. And so, you know, there are reviews on Amazon where people can say, oh, it makes very good cream for cakes. Had a wicked (laughs) night after eating that cake. Yes, cake. (laughs) And so the littering is obviously a big problem. But David Nutt, who runs the Neuropsychopharmacology Unit at Imperial College London, finds this whole debate kind of a distraction because, and this is a quote from him, 
Anyone with an ounce of common sense knows that it's one of the least harmful drugs. Between 2001 and 2016, misuse of the gas caused about two deaths a year hmm. in England and Wales, which is a very, very low number for an estimated seven or 800,000 users. The high lasts less than a minute. It doesn't cause hangovers or render users unable to drive. And so most of this public outcry is about littering. And he notes that they're calling him whippets as well. So okay. he knows that lingo for I'm it. I'm still cool is what it is. <laughs> right, exactly. You're still hip and with it, Jennifer. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, people are just tossing these whippets in car parks, wherever. So in his mind, it's like complaining about broken bottles because people drink alcohol, essentially. Mm -hmm. They don't think that there's a rise in demand for nitrous oxide. It's just that because people are moving outside to do their partying, there's higher visibility. Yeah, when you read the headline, I was thinking like people attacking each other with nitrous oxide. This is downright whimsical. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm fine with this. It's just, you know, it's a litter problem. You got to work on it. <laughs> you know, I, I will say that at one of the um, Burning Man local events I've been to, there was a camp that put on kind of a spectacle called the Whippet Olympics. And the goal was that <laughs> people had to do a Whippet and then run or like spin around or do some kind of physical activity, namely because it's very difficult to have motor coordination right. function. So if the war involving nitrous oxide ever came around, I wouldn't be too worried. I wouldn't really need a huge defense budget. It would right. just be, <laughs> make sure you got your camera on. <laughs> All right, next link. Next link. So this article comes to us from newscientist.com and it's titled Fish are becoming addicted to methamphetamines seeping into rivers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, All right. Well, I mean, are they more productive? Are they breeding more? <laughs> <laughs> They're working. They're very, very hardworking now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very low output work, but they are working more. So illicit drug use is a growing global health concern, mm -hmm. the article leads. Pavel Horky at the Czech University of Life Sciences says, where methamphetamine users are, there is also methamphetamine pollution. Mm. Humans excrete methamphetamines into wastewater, but treatment plants aren't designed to deal with such substances. Whoa. And because of this, as treated wastewater flows into streams, so do methamphetamines and other drugs. Wow. Kind of seems like a little bit of an oversight to me. I did yeah. not realize that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we eventually get that back again. Like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's bad for the fish, too. But we're, if they're not filtering it out at all, that means we're all constantly low-dosing meth if we're hey, in an area that's how do you think we kept productivity <laughs> levels high during the pandemic? Come on, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although this is specifically seemed to be about the Czech Republic. So this may be oh, okay. a Czech Republic problem. But, you know, who knows? Maybe we have the same issue here. So in some streams in the Czech Republic, methamphetamine concentrations have been measured at hundreds of nanograms per liter, according to Horky and his colleagues. But the effect of these levels on aquatic animals has been unclear. To investigate, they set up an experiment to detect possible adverse side effects of this hidden ecological epidemic. They divided 120 hatchery-reared brown trout into two 350-liter tanks. The water in one tank contained methamphetamines <laughs> matching concentrations measured in wild streams, while the other was left uncontaminated as a control. Oof. So this is science. We are right. drugging fish because <laughs> we need to know just how much fish have been drugged in what quantities in this other place. Yeah. Science. That's great. We, we uh, have to drug them to find out how much they've already been drugged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After eight weeks, the researchers removed the methamphetamine from the experimental tank. Oh, they just made them go through withdrawal. They're like... <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, oh. intentionally. During the following 10-day withdrawal period, Horky tested fish selected at random for signs of addiction and withdrawal. <laughs> to do this, he constructed a tank in which water could flow in on one side and out the other as if a stream were passing through the enclosure. One side of the flow, however, contained the same level of methamphetamine that the experimental tank had contained. The control fish showed no preference for one side of the simulated stream or the other, but the methamphetamine-exposed fish repeatedly chose to stay in the drugged water. <laughs> you know, understandably. Sure, I'm not looking down on the fish. It clearly yeah. has a problem and needs support and rehab. But it was a problem <laughs> that we gave them on yeah, yeah. purpose. Yeah, we yes, 100% addicted yeah. it to this stuff. But, you know, it's already happened, so we may as well look at the upside to oh, it. Right. But what's more, <laughs> the methamphetamine exposed fish had elevated levels of methamphetamine in their brain tissue oh. and were also less active than normal, which may reduce their chances of surviving and reproducing. Horky ends by saying drug reward cravings by fish could overshadow natural rewards like foraging or mating, mm. and such contamination could change the functioning of whole ecosystems. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe bears eat the fish, and then they get on meth, too. <laughs> right. And then they're just like, they just start drinking out of the stream. Yeah, and they're like, <laughs> I'll only take fish out of this stream because these are the good meth fish. Like, Yeah, exactly. It's, it's fraught. Fraught, I tell you. <laughs> We probably shouldn't have had a population-wide addiction to methamphetamines ourselves if we're really yeah. looking to lay blame here. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> but I hope the Czech Republic figures it out. I hope we don't have this problem. But if we do, I hope we figure it out because it's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, the be I think the best we can hope for is that our water treatment plants are capable or willing to pull it out of the water. Because I guarantee you we have meth in our water systems. It's yeah, just we have yeah. everything yeah. in our water. We've got systems. at least yeah. a ton of Prozac. We've got I mean maybe and maybe the Prozac mm -hmm. balances out the the meth. <laughs> like maybe that's the deal is they only have meth and we have meth and a lot of designer drugs. So Oh my I, goodness. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, it sounds like we're saying we're just going to put some Prozac in the stream and then just call it quits. Yeah, probably. Then again though, they're finding out if they have meth in their brains. That fish definitely died for them to go into his brain to find out if he had meth in there. So That's true. maybe being alive on meth is better than being dead. <laughs> wow. It's true. Wow. Yeah. I'm going real dark here. This is, mm. <laughs> this is where I am today. You've already told me if I go outside in the weather right now, I'm going to die. <laughs> so, you know, like, what's the point? <laughs> Well, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, right. y'all. Next link. Next link. Our next link comes from Barbie Lotsenadeau for the Daily Beast. And this article is entitled, Drug Smuggling Cat Escapes High Security Sri Lankan Prison. Oh. Wow. The way they had the cat in prison? Yeah, nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. So basically, and it's a really short and sweet one. I mean, I'm probably just going to end up reading the whole thing out loud. But it's got this great picture that's just a Getty Images picture of a lovely plush tabby cat, not knowing whether this is the actual cat in question, but a cat that had been detained at Sri Lanka's high security Welikata prison on suspicion of smuggling drugs to inmates has escaped. They detained the cat last week with two grams of heroin, two SIM cards, and a memory chip hidden in a plastic bag tied to its collar on the prison grounds. They suspect that the drug traffickers who trained this cat 
are part of the same cartel that was caught using an eagle to <laughs> smuggle drugs in a suburb of Colombo. You got to give them credit. I mean, they're using classy animals, at least. That's cool. Yeah. And these are not known for being highly trained animals. Like, I know you can yeah. train, you know, birds of prey, but cats, training cats to do anything. I mean, the cat's in on it. That's the only explanation. <laughs> right. The article very cheekily notes that the menagerie of accomplices were associated with the underworld crime boss, Ango. Loka Loka. And Loka died while hiding from the authorities in early July, according to local media. Then a man and a woman were arrested Sunday for illegally cremating him and forging identity documents. Oh! So, article doesn't really go into that speculation, but pretty shifty here, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> The article goes on to note that while there is no stipulation for animal arrest under Sri Lankan law, police were hoping that the cat could lead them to the smuggler's den. Mm -hmm. The cat reportedly scampered out of its holding room and escaped through a fence when prison guards came in to feed it. Because snitches get stitches. He knows the game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that cat ain't no rat. That's right. No, he definitely isn't. Next link. Next Next link. All right, well, New Republic poses an interesting question. What if we pay people to stop using drugs? Ooh. And, you know, glib headline aside, what they're talking about is an established, if not very widespread, substance abuse treatment philosophy called contingency management that focuses on reinforcing positive behavior rather than punishing or infantilizing addicts. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, what it looks like is program members receive a reward, usually money, for every day that they come back in and test clean. And, you know, on the face of it, a lot of people would, of course, say that sounds like a terrible idea. You're incentivizing going to use drugs in the first place. But proponents say it has a ton of research behind it that proves that, you know, like it or not, it's actually more effective and costs less overall than all other existing treatment programs. Wow. Yeah. So one example of a contingency management program is PROP, the Positive Reinforcement Opportunity Project in San Francisco. The article follows the case of Tyrone Clifford Jr., an HIV-positive meth addict who had been using for 20 years by the time he came in. He had repeatedly turned down inpatient rehab over the years because his husband, who was also HIV positive, needed his help at home. And Tyrone felt like he couldn't just disappear for two or three months. Mm. He also just didn't like the attitude of 12-step programs that focus on powerlessness and surrender. He said, I did this. I can undo it. I'm not giving up control. And advocates of traditional rehab would say, of course you think that. That's the problem. But contingency management says, if you don't meet them where they are, you won't get to them at all. And Mm. so at PROP, the program lasts a maximum of 12 weeks. And the total payout, if you don't miss a single day, is $330. So it's not that much, but it is something if you're the kind of person who already has a massive drug problem. Sure. Tyrone says when he entered, he actually had no intention of quitting for good. He thought, I can do 12 weeks, and then when I'm done, I'll have $330 to get high with. But the program also includes counseling and other support. And by the end of the 12 weeks, he found that he was thinking a lot more clearly and was ready to try being sober for real. Yeah, he said the $330, like I said, doesn't sound like a lot. But it's enough for a person to have food to eat or get transportation to doctor's appointments that they may have been missing or just Mm -hmm. pay their cell phone bill so they can reestablish social connections, which are super important if you're trying to sort of get back into society. Yeah. They said even if someone comes in literally high at that time and resets their financial rewards, they're never shamed or turned away from the counseling and other services. And that sort of acceptance was very appealing to him and what ultimately got him in there. So unsurprisingly, all of this is still a really hard sell for both federal regulators Mm -hmm. and fundraisers. 
Nobody gets elected on the idea of coddling drug addicts, right? Right. And in fact, there is on the books already an anti-kickback statute that outlaws any form of reward system in substance abuse programs that are paid for by Medicaid. But actually, contingency management programs have been quietly in use at VA hospitals for about 10 years now because the VA is considered an independent entity that doesn't have to abide by the same Medicaid rules. So Dr. Dominic DeFilippis, a clinical psychologist who helped implement the VA's program, says he's heard all the objections before, and his response is just look at the results. Since 2011, they've treated around 5,400 veterans who have provided over 70,000 urine samples, and more than 92% of those have tested negative. He said the VA's program tweaked the rewards aspect a little bit using what they called the fishbowl method. So instead of receiving a set reward after each negative screen, participants draw prize slips at random that might just say, good job, but might be worth as much as $100. The more Mm. consecutive negative screens you have racked up, the more slips you're allowed to draw on each visit. He said, on average, folks in the program earn around $200 by the end. So again, it's not a lot, but it's Mm -hmm. enough. And Dave Philippus says his favorite time is Christmas because almost all of the veterans talk about how they're going to use the prize money to buy presents for family members that they're starting to reconnect with through their sobriety. Whereas in standard treatment programs, he said the holidays are known for bringing added depression and relapse. So he's like, that alone says to me that it's working. That's amazing. Yeah, it was really there's not a lot funny about this. It was just a really fascinating article to me. Because I've always been, you know, extremely utilitarian about stuff, whether you're talking about criminals or drug addicts or even just chronic disease. The fact is these people exist. And unless Mm -hmm. we're going to go fully tribal and start banishing people to the hinterlands, you know, one way or another, (laughs) we're going to have to be investing something as a society to take care of them. Right. Yep. So it just makes sense to do the thing that's most effective instead of trying to put some sort of moral judgment on top of it. Yeah. Definitely. I do like that they threw in a minor, smaller addiction in terms of the lotto style prize slips, because that variable reward loop is Mm -hmm. a very well-known phenomenon to get people hooked into certain types of behaviors, which here it sounds like is a much better alternative than what they would be doing otherwise. So, you know. (laughs) Right. Right. It's sort of a gamification system towards well-being. And Mm -hmm. and that's such a brilliant usage of it. Well, and he talked a little bit about this idea of like people get very haughty about like, I don't need to be bribed to do the right thing. And he's like, actually, we're all being bribed all the time. Like we have rewards Mm -hmm. programs on our cards. There's so many things in life where we're being bribed, but we just feel like it's somehow not a weakness in our case. So it's an interesting idea. I'm all for it if it saves money. That seems to be (laughs) the main thing. Yeah. Yeah, And saves lives. It restores people's confidence and connections with the world. I love it. Yeah. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from RollingStone.com, and it's titled, The True Story Behind Cocaine Bear. (laughs) I want to know, because I've seen a lot of references to Cocaine Bear, but I really don't know anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to get the true story behind the movie that's coming out about said Cocaine Bear. (laughs) So Tuesday, Variety reported that actor Elizabeth Banks' upcoming project would focus heavily on a bear involved in a botched drug smuggling operation... And people on social media reacted in much the same way a coke-addicted ursine would if someone <laughs> broke out a credit card and a rolled-up $20 at a party. Uh, so the film is described as a character-driven thriller, oh, okay. and it's reportedly based on a true story of a convicted drug smuggler who died while parachuting from a plane 
Lane carrying an extremely heavy load of drugs. All right. The unfortunate bear in question happened to chance upon 40 containers of cocaine and died of an overdose. Oh, wow. Uh, Sadly, but a little bit predictably. (laughs) So there's many questions that are raised by this project. You know, uh, from what perspective will the story be told? The drug trafficker or the bear? And if the latter, (laughs) would the film focus on the bear's everyday life, consisting largely of footage (laughs) of salmon fishing and developing fecal plugs, Google it, for hibernation? Oh my god. Uh, That's all a direct (laughs) quote from the article, as you might guess. Yes, it seems Uh, like a lot of conjecture, but hey, you know what? If it's character driven, it could go any direction. Very true. And since we know nothing about these details, we do know some things about the true story. So here's that. The story of the cocaine bear starts with the tale of Andrew Carter Thornton, the well-off son of Kentucky horse breeders who became an Air Force officer and Purple Heart recipient and later a narcotics police officer. Thornton resigned from the Lexington, Kentucky Police Force in 1977 to practice law. But the law-abiding life apparently did not serve him well. In 1981, he was arrested along with 25 other men for attempting to steal guns from a naval base in Fresno, California, and after fleeing the state, he was again found heavily armed in North Carolina and brought back to California to face reduced misdemeanor drug charges. Which, I don't really get how that works. Like, you flee a prosecution, and then you get a reduced rate, but whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So he pleaded no contest to the charges and was sentenced to six months in prison and a $500 fine. (laughs) But Thornton's days of drug smuggling were far from over. On September 11th, 1985, his body was found in a driveway in Knoxville, Tennessee, wearing a parachute and carrying about 77 pounds of cocaine, which was later (laughs) valued to be worth about $14 million. Wow. Yeah. And he just landed in some guy's yard like he did. Yeah, I think so. And he was heavily armed, wearing a bulletproof vest, and also carrying a membership card to the Miami Jockey Club. Authorities later found his plane, which had been on autopilot about 60 miles away, and they determined that he had attempted to jump from the plane, but his parachute had failed to open. Ah. But in addition to the bizarre circumstances surrounding his death, Thornton is also notable for inspiring perhaps the most vicious quote ever to be featured in an obituary. Uh, The district attorney who prosecuted him on the 1981 marijuana trafficking charge told the LA Times after he died, I'm glad his parachute didn't open. I hope he got a hell of a high out of that. And they put that in the obituary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wow. (laughs) So that's all very, you know, sad and unfortunate mixed, I guess. But the question is, you know, where does the bear come in? Uh Uh, A few months after Thornton died, a hunter in the Chattahoochee National Forest in Georgia stumbled upon a 175-pound black bear. The bear was, to quote Rolling Stone, extremely dead. It appeared to have overdosed after attempting to eat 75 pounds of 95% pure cocaine, which it had found in a duffel bag. The officer who performed the bear's autopsy later said its stomach was literally packed to the brim with cocaine. There isn't a mammal on the planet that could survive that. Cerebral hemorrhaging, respiratory failure, hyperthermia, renal failure, heart failure, stroke, you name it, that bear had it. Uh, Remarkably, the story does not end there. The bear was then stuffed and put on display, passing through various owners, including, at one point, country star Waylon Jennings, before finally ending up at the roadside attraction, the (laughs) Kentucky for Kentucky Fun Mall in 2015, where it was redubbed Pablo Escobar. Wow. 
I was yeah. skeptical at first. I was like, how can you possibly make an entire movie out of a bear ate some cocaine? But I'm I'm on board now. I can see yeah. the entire yeah. narrative arc here. This is amazing. Yeah, I can easily see this being kind of like, you know, a burn after reading style misadventure that just ends up sort of circling around this bear as a central plot point. But, you know, you, you stick to the human beings, I guess, through it. And then maybe, you know, Pablo Escobar as a stuffed avatar. <laughs> but one of the proprietors told Roadside America, you wouldn't think that a cocaine bear would be for all ages. Ages, but kids love it. Everybody <laughs> wants a, their picture with Cocaine Bear. And the bear even made a cameo appearance in a surreal 2016 ad for the mall, which I highly recommend you look up. It's only about 30 seconds long, but it is strange and spaced out. And there's a fair amount of swearing that's bleeped out with chicken clucking. Like, <laughs> it's a whole thing. You should definitely check it out. Wow. So then Rolling Stone has actually formatted this entire article as kind of like a faux Q&A. And it ends with, this is a fascinating story, but it doesn't sound super amenable to cinematic adaptation. If I'm being honest with myself, will I actually watch this movie when it comes out? The article answer is probably not, but after discussing it with you, Jen, I feel like we have now seen the potential for this movie. Yeah, and, and I, I think that author <laughs> is just trying to, like, appear above it all. I guarantee uh-huh. you he's going to go see it. There's no yeah. way he doesn't go see it after researching all that yeah, information. Yeah, totally. Cocaine Bear is going to be the next Grapes of Wrath. That's oh, all yeah. I'm going to say. Or yeah. the next Sharknado. But either way, yes. it's going to make a yeah. lot of money. <laughs> I feel confident. <laughs> next link. Next link. NewScientist.com reports that antidepressants leaking into waterways could make crayfish bolder. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, initially I was like, oh, antidepressants in the water system, that's bad. And then I was like, crayfish boulder. You said it like that sounds like a good thing, but actually that doesn't sound good either. That's like... Well, the article goes in to say that trace amounts of antidepressants that go into rivers and lakes could be making crayfish behave more boldly and disturbing their ecosystems. So it does seem like, okay, maybe this isn't a great thing. Right. But, you know, antidepressants leaking into waterways, not a whole lot of silver lining there from at least from any angle perspective. (laughs) (laughs) We have been getting more and more evidence over the years that various medications can end up in waterways because obviously we are excreting them in our urine. Mm -hmm. And this is mostly antidepressants known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs with almost one in eight people taking them in the U.S. Hmm. Not sure when they were getting that data because this post-corona world, I'm going to guess that number is probably a little bit higher at this point. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Regardless, uh, Lindsay Reisinger at the University of Florida and her colleagues wondered if they would make crayfish less fearful in the same way that these same drugs make humans less anxious because anxiety and fear are mm-hmm. siblings. So her team looked at crayfish behavior in two artificial water streams. One had trace levels of an SSRI called citalopram. And when the medicine was present, the animals were nearly twice as fast to emerge from their shelters to explore their surroundings and also spent nearly twice as long looking for food. So Hmm. the animal's greater boldness could have several effects. Like obviously it could make them more vulnerable to predators like fish and wading birds. And while some crayfish species are classed as invasive in some areas, there are other species that are endangered because, of course, why would it uniformly apply? Mm-hmm. Right. Hashtag not all crayfish. <laughs> so having some crayfish spending more time looking for their food, like algae and leaf litter, 
could also reduce the amount of this organic matter in streams, which could then have other cascading effects on ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So the article, short and sweet, ends with a little to-do action for the rest of us. So remember, you should never dispose of unwanted pharmaceuticals into household drains, but return them to pharmacies, which is nice, but doesn't address the whole, well, we're still excreting it yeah, out of our bodies. Yeah, it's still going to be in the waterways. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, if we made some crayfish a little happier, like maybe they were all depressed and now they feel, right? you know, happy and in control of their lives and able to go out and get some <laughs> algae. So maybe we will bond with them as pets and this could be an important step towards their domestication sure. in human households. It you could, never know. That's right. I choose to remain optimistic, but that could just be the SSRIs talking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.